Hey, Practical Significance Podcast listeners, Ron here with some exciting news to share. I recently bought some music notation software. Let me tell you, this stuff is amazing. With it, I can write music and I can hear it played. I can even add an orchestra around it. I should be able to do anything I want to do and maybe even things that I never thought of being able to do before. What's extra cool about this is that in my 66 years of life on this planet, I have never shown any musical talent whatsoever. I don't have a degree in music. I don't play a musical instrument. I don't got rhythm. I don't got music. But I have read a book on music theory, so that should be enough. I fully expect that you will be enjoying my wonderful musical compositions soon. Some of you may be skeptical about this, but I know it is entirely possible because I see people do this all the time with statistical software. They have this powerful tool in their hands and they may have taken a statistics course at some point or read a statistics book, so they feel confident they can analyze their data and interpret their results, creating beautiful science. If they can do that, well, then I can compose music. So roll over Beethoven and tell Tchaikovsky the news. Of course, the results created by untrained people using statistical software is highly likely to be just as bad as the music I will create. Of course, the results created by untrained people using statistical software is highly likely to be just as bad as the music I will create. Fortunately, my unworthy music will never be published. Unfortunately, poor work generated by people with software tools but without training and experience can end up as published scientific literature. Don't fall into this trap, friends. Instead, consult a professional statistician. Don't wait any longer. Soon, you will be making beautiful music together. And now, let's join the podcast. Hello, and welcome to Practical Significance, a podcast to inspire listeners with compelling stories from statistics and data science and to propel data-driven careers forward. Here are your hosts, the ASA's Director of Strategic Initiatives, Donna Lalone, and Executive Director, Ron Wasserstein. Welcome, everyone, to Practical Significance. Ron and I are especially delighted to have our friends from Stanton Communications with us today. Emily and Lori are the brains behind This is Statistics and Count on Stats, and so we thought our listeners would enjoy a deeper dive with them. And I'm going to start by asking both of them to introduce themselves and tell us a little bit about their role at Stanton Communications you know, maybe describe a typical day. And Lori, I'll start with you. Great. Thank you, Donna. It's really a pleasure to be here. We love the podcast and we're excited to be part of it. My name is Lori Russo. I'm president of Stanton Communications and now happily a part owner of the firm with Emily and our founder and CEO, Peter Stanton. I've been working for Stanton Communications since 1999. And before that, I worked in television news. So that was always my passion, journalism and news. And thankfully, even though I switched over to public relations, I still have a lot of engagement with members of the media. You asked about a typical day. And what I love about this work is that there really isn't such a thing as a typical day. Coming out of TV news, I 
sort of found that I thrive in variety and a little bit of unpredictability in my days. But there are things that are part of the everyday. In my position, it's kind of making sure that all of our programs are on track, our clients are happy, and that our people are doing well and feeling supported, especially now, you know, there's so much trauma going on and mental health is really top of mind. So we want to make sure our people are doing well and feeling supported and that our culture is being honored. You know, it only takes one person to kind of throw things off. And so that's always top of mind as well. And then making sure that our company is growing in the right way. We're doing a lot of interesting work here in the U.S. as well as internationally, and I think that's really exciting. I actually just got back from a trip to Croatia to meet with our network of international partners, and that was really important and kind of eye-opening and, and good for our relationship building. So again, no such thing is really a typical day, but those are the things that I typically have going on on my end. That's exciting, and we definitely want to hear more about the trip to Croatia. Emily, I'll turn it over to you to introduce yourself and describe maybe a non-typical day. Oh, boy. Okay, now we're going all the way non-typical days. But yeah, so I'm Emily Winstrom. I'm Vice President of State and Communications. Uh, Like Lori said, I'm also part of ownership now, which is thrilling and a great honor. I've been with Stanton about 10 years in total, I think at this point, and uh, 15 years plus uh, working in content and public relations and all of that. I think it's common for a lot of us working in public relations. I had my roots in features journalism before I ever got into the public relations side and then came in through content marketing. And so a lot of what I do kind of works at that nexus of integrating traditional public relations and content strategy along with it, which is exactly what we do with business stats, which I'm excited to talk a little bit more about. But boy, if we're talking about a non-typical day at our firm, that really opens wide open a lot of different things. But we might be boots on the ground working at an event we've been helping to build or helping to build relationships with reporters in setting background briefs or interviews, all sorts of different things we might be doing on any given day, which is part of the real fun of it all, really. Keeps it fresh. It does sound interesting and exciting. And now I want to take you up, Emily, on your desire to talk more about this is statistics by asking you what's challenging about this type of campaign. So say a little bit about what this is statistics is and what the challenges are. Sure. So This is Statistics is an ASA initiative that we've loved working on with you for, I think, seven or eight years now. And it's really focused on inspiring the next generation of statisticians. And so we kicked off the campaign with a focus on students and educators and parents. And it's really been a truly uh, unique and fun campaign. We've gotten to meet so many awesome people as we work to break the stereotype of that dry, boring, number-crunching statistician and show all of the incredible ways that statisticians are contributing to the world with their important work. Sometimes they're incredibly cool work. Uh, you know, we're talking to people who work on Silicon Valley and are sports analysts or data journalists, so many different things. We've talked to people who work in fashion. They're always just so smart and dynamic and uh, have a great sense of humors. And so it's been really wonderful to not just be able to build that into the campaign, but just to meet these 
cool people. Uh, and then in addition to the statistician profiles, the campaign also includes a significant content-driven aspect. So we work on a blog, we do social media outreach, we do reporter outreach. And uh, another cornerstone for us has been that we do a student contest in the spring and the fall semester each year, rotating that spring contest. We focus more on beginner-friendly statistics concepts. And then in the fall data challenge, we do a little bit more advanced challenges to students with that, where they get to work with a real data set. And across all of the contests, we are focused on really bringing that connection for students between the statistics practice and the ways that that all connects to the real world and the ways that it can really help to inform other things that they love like sports, or this year we did one on uh, data visualization in journalism, uh, or making an impact on important issues that they might care about, like addressing homelessness. Uh, so it's a real blast. And I, I do think that that's also what keeps it very interesting. And uh, Ron, as you're seeing, a little bit challenging sometimes is making sure that we keep that balance and are reaching students in the most impactful way. You know, the students that we're working with today uh, are not the students that were coming into high school eight years ago when we started all of this. And so uh, keeping up with where their mindset is, uh, the different types of challenges that they're dealing with at any given point, especially these last few years, for sure. Uh, helping teachers reach their students, too, in dealing with the challenges that they are dealing with in these times is all very much top of mind for us on a regular basis with this campaign. Well, that's a big scope and a lot of challenges. And the same thing is going to be true for Count on Stats. And Lori, I was hoping that you would fill us in a bit on Count on Stats and the challenges of running that campaign. Sure, of course. So the whole concept of Count on Stats is really about raising awareness of the federal statistical system. There are 13 principal federal statistical agencies, and then there are statistics offices within other larger agencies. And we want people to understand how every part of our society, every part of our economy count on the data that these agencies collect and report. And most people, I think if you ask, you know, are familiar with the Census Bureau or the Bureau of Labor Statistics and generally understand the American Community Survey or the monthly jobs numbers. But these other agencies like the National Center for Health Statistics, which looks at health trends, and the National Center for Science and Engineering Statistics, which looks at science and engineering workforce and R&D expenditures and you know, all of these things are producing information that our society needs to understand. And for example, um, one of the things that we work with the ASA on is when you account for inflation, a lot of these agencies we're talking about are underfunded. And when that happens, it makes it really hard for them to innovate. But the data users that rely on this data to make decisions and to produce their own reports, they want more data. They want more granular data. They want more timely data. And all of that takes resources and resources cost money. So when you consider the, the underfunding and the, the impact that has, it's really significant. This stuff isn't necessarily sexy to a lot of people, but it's very important. And I think when you ask about challenges, there's so much competition for attention. And it's attention from journalists, from policymakers, for you know, to the everyday public. 
And it can be really hard to break through all of that noise if you don't have real controversy or something very juicy. And we had that briefly with the previous administration. There was some controversy that we were able to use to kind of raise awareness of what the federal statistical agencies do and how important they are. Now we're at a point where instead of putting out fires, we're trying to rebuild the house, if you will. It is challenging, but it's also, I think, very rewarding because we're contributing to a conversation that is incredibly meaningful and so, so important to our everyday lives. So, Laurie, I'll follow up with you on on the challenges because I'm a Twitter follower, Mm. (laughs) not so much a a social media producer, but I really feel like social media is changing the way in which we get information. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how it has changed the approach for your work and maybe what do you see for the future? Well, social media has been a really useful tool for us across the board in all of our work. Uh, because it helps us amplify our messages directly to the audiences that we're trying to reach. For count on stats, we're looking at data users, policymakers, reporters, and I know Twitter specifically has a lot of detractors right now. And a, a lot of people think it's toxic. And in some cases, I really think it is. But It remains a primary tool for count on stats because it's where journalists are and we need to get in front of journalists. And, you know, we generally stay out of controversy. We are more pushing out information than necessarily engaging in dialogue. But we found that journalists are interested in the content that we are putting out. And we are obviously using Twitter as a tool to track what they're covering, what they're paying attention to. So for us, that platform specifically remains crucial. And I believe it will for a long period of time. Less so Facebook, less so Instagram, TikTok. I, I think for our audience and our purposes, those aren't really a great fit. As far as the future goes, I think really the only predictable thing is that some new platform is going to emerge. And it's usually the younger people that move to it first. And then the older people eventually catch up. And then the younger people get bored because the older people are there. And then they go to the next one. So that's what I predict. But in terms of count on stats specifically, I think Twitter will remain really, really important for us. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're on Twitter, please follow us. Our handle is at count on stats. It's easy to remember. So yeah, for us, it's very much focused on that one platform. Thanks, Lori. And Emily, what does your crystal ball tell you about (laughs) social media? If only I had a crystal ball. But you know, I think Lori touched on something that's very true, which is that social media can be a little toxic these days. But I think that looking ahead, it's going to continue to be incredibly important. I think that people, you know, they don't want noise, they want connection, they want community. And I think that as social media evolves, we are getting a little bit more sophisticated about how we foster the right things in social media. Yeah, Twitter's maybe not quite there in all cases. 
But I think that one of the really interesting things as you look at the big booming younger generation network that's growing right now, TikTok, is that one of the things that's been really resonating and special about it, at least so far, has been that it's a much more positive corner of the internet than what you see in some other social media. And so... Lori hit the nail on the head. One of the things that makes it really challenging, especially when we are working with a student demographic like on This Is Stats, is that you've got to be able to keep your hand on that pulse of where are they going? And then also kind of make that assessment of, is that the right place for our campaign to reach them also? It's always constantly changing. It's part of what makes it fun too. It keeps it very interesting. And just making that balance between watching what's growing and what's working and what's changing and what is right for the strategy behind a particular campaign and the messages and the audiences involved in that. For This Is Stats, when we started many years ago, you know, Facebook was a big booming place to be for students. And of course, that's completely changed following this pattern of everyone else is there now, all the adults are there. And so the kids don't want to be there anymore. But we still do a lot with Instagram. We do a lot with Twitter, also reaching reporters and also reaching teachers, reaching older students. You know, we try to build out a lot of reels and stories and and just reach them every way we can, be creative with it and use all different types of media. And I'll shout out our channels as well. We are This Is Stats across all of those different networks, also YouTube. Yeah, I think that covers it. Thank you, Emily, and thank you both. I recently acquired a crystal ball, but unfortunately, it turned out to be a knockoff. And I discovered that uh, pretty quickly when it said that my beloved Kansas City Royals were going to be a good baseball team this year. So it was obvious that (laughs) the ball was not working. So Lori and Emily, and maybe I'll just start with Lori. Both of you mentioned when talking about social media, you mentioned interacting with the media, with journalists and so on. So Lori, starting with you and then Emily, around to you again. What's your advice for talking to the media about statistics? You know, I talked to a group of journalists covering business and the economy recently, and they are really, really hungry for what we talked about earlier, which is the more timely, more granular data. And we've been working with the Society for Advancing Business Editing and Writing, or SABU. We hold maybe two or three webinars every year together with them to help journalists understand the data that's available to them and how to use it. And overall, I think we just want the media to know that we can help them access resources that will strengthen their own statistical literacy. That is a skill that journalists today really need to have is knowing how to look at and report on statistics. And so when we talk to them about that, it's really, what do you need and how can we help? And sometimes it's, you know, how do you understand margin of error? You know, that's something that we see a lot, especially during election years. So even things that are kind of fairly straightforward like that, sometimes they need a little bit of help with. But in terms of how we talk to them, it's really just about helping them understand what's available and how to use it to strengthen their reporting. Thanks, Lori. Emily, anything to add to that? Sure. You know, I think that Something that we've seen time and again when we've done outreach for This Is Stats is that one of the most powerful things you can do is really make it clear to a reporter uh, where statisticians are really 
making a difference in terms of trending topics in the news or current events that are unfolding. You know, I don't know that we've encountered anything so far that there's not some statistician somewhere making a real meaningful contribution. And so being able to tell that story, uh, you know, be specific about it and more than that, you know, get personal about it and, and tell it in a way that makes that human connection too, can really be very powerful and illuminating too, uh, showing where statisticians are playing into some topics that can be very surprising to readers and into reporters too. And then along with that, again, coming back to making those connections, if you're a statistician talking to reporters, I think one of the best things you can do is just think a little bit about dialing back the jargon and the statistical terms a little bit and using easy to understand terms for layman to communicate what you're saying. And just kind of breaking that down a little bit extra can really be helpful to put the focus on the impact that the work is having as opposed to the uh, getting tied up in the statistics, the jargon, I should say. Thanks, Lori and Emily. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm going to switch gears as we come to the end. Lori, when you said you came from television news, I flashed back to a meeting that we had where where you turned me on to Succession, and I actually watched uh, <laughs> Succession while, while I was riding my spinning bike. And now, actually, while I'm riding my spinning bike, I've gone back in time and I'm watching the newsroom with Jeff Daniels. So oh, there yeah. you go. So I'm still in television journalism. But anyway, we always like to ask our guests for recommendations on books, movies, articles, you know, other podcasts. So Emily, I'll start with you. What are you reading, watching, or listening to? Oh, fantastic. I'm actually really excited for this question because I think you're going to like this book. I am reading a book called The Bestseller Code, and it's actually a very data-driven analysis about what makes for a best-selling novel. So you think about those top-ranked lists for USA Today or the New York Times. These two individuals, Jody Archer and Matthew L. Jockers are their names, have created through extensive analysis and data collection an algorithm that is pretty accurately predictive of what will create a best-selling novel. So it's been informative for me. I do write a little bit of fiction on the side. And so that's what really made me pick it up. But it's also been very cool to look at storytelling through this other lens, through the data. And then of course, as we record this, the first volume of the last season of Stranger Things just came out. So that was a big part of my weekends, working my way through all of that. That's great. And Emily, at the next This Is Statistics meeting, we are definitely going to have to take time to talk a little bit about favorite fiction because I'm always wanting to add to my reading list. So Lori, what about you? Uh, books, movies, articles, podcasts? I've been reading a lot of nonfiction lately. I was not the best student in school when it came to history. And so I feel like I'm catching up as a grown up by reading a lot of nonfiction. And I'm really into the Washington DC stuff because, you know, that's the world we live in. I just finished The Man Who Ran Washington, which is about former Secretary of State James A. Baker. Really, really interesting story. And now I have just begun to reread Team of Rivals, which is a book by Doris Kearns Goodwin about President Lincoln. 
And this particular book is a commitment. It's about 900 pages long, but it is so beautifully written. And the history is just fascinating. And it's something I will return to over the course of my life, because I believe it will be different every time I read it. I'll pick up on things. So that's the book I'm committed to right now. And then on my way back from Croatia, I watched Roadrunner, which is the documentary about Anthony Bourdain. I had the opportunity to meet him at the National Press Club, I think it was in 2008. And he was so compelling. And I think everybody just fell in love with him. If you know about him, his presence was all about food and the industry. But then he kind of morphed into really sort of opening people's eyes to culture in different parts of the world and humanity. And I think we as a society, a global society, are missing that voice now that he's gone. So that was really nice to watch, but also kind of made me a little bit sad. But that's it. That's what I have going on right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, those are great. And I actually wrote down all of your book recommendations. Thanks so much to Lori and Emily for joining us. It has been fantastic to get to know them a little bit more. And I'm definitely excited about the things that we will be able to do with This Is Statistics and Count on Stats. And thanks to our listeners for joining us. Please feel free to reach out to Ron or me. We'd love to have your ideas on folks we should invite on the podcast. And with that, I will turn it over to Ron for his top 10. Many things are better when statisticians are involved. So it seemed to me, a fan of blues music, that some of the great names of blues musicians would be even greater if they had been named by statisticians or data scientists. To illustrate, Terry Harmonica Bean is a great moniker, but if we had been involved, he would have been Terry Harmonic Series Bean, which is so much better. Here is the top 10 list of blues musician stage names if we, the statistics and data science community, had named them. See how many of them you can sort out what their actual stage name was. I'll give you a small gift if you're the first person who emails me correctly identifying all 10. So here we go. Number 10, BB Bootstrap King. Number 9, Mew Rainey. Number 8, Munging Waters. Number seven, T-Test Walker. Number six, Machine Learning Kelly. Okay, he's not a blues musician, but the name was too good to pass up. Number five, Big Time Series Sarah. Number four, Big O Turner. Number three, John MLE Hooker. Number two, Double Blind Blake. And the number one blues musician stage name, if statisticians and data scientists had named them, the best linear unbiased estimates, brothers. Well, that's it for the July Practical Significance podcast. Join us in August to continue the conversation and say hello if you see us at JSM. Thank you for listening to this edition of Practical Significance, the podcast of the American Statistical Association. A new episode will be coming your way next month from Amstat News, the ASA's monthly membership magazine.